We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank wants to know how you reward yourself because they have cards that make every day more rewarding. Are you a points order, cashback guru, low intro APR lover? With U.S. Bank, it's up to you because they have the cards to fit your lifestyle. So earn more whether you're shopping at a gas station or grocery store, even while planning a staycation. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome into the Rotowire NFL podcast for NFL divisional round of the 2020-21 NFL playoffs. I'm very excited. I'm your host, John McKechnie, joined as always by Mario Puig. We are going to dive into all four matchups uh, headlining this weekend, and then we are going to, on the back end of this podcast, dive a little bit deeper into Mario's Dynasty Watch article um, that was posted about receivers. We'll get to running backs next week, but we we started things off a week ago looking at the top five Dynasty receivers from this upcoming rookie class, the class of 21. Uh, We're going to look a little bit further in, find some of those hidden gems, find some other guys that uh, you know, we, we need to be talking about because they will be uh, certainly on the fantasy and the dynasty radar um, here in a couple of months. But Mario, let's lead things off. We'll go in order. We got the Rams going up to Green Bay to face the well-rested Green Bay Packers at Lambeau Field. The Rams are six and a half point underdogs. We got the over-under in this one sitting at 45 and a half. I mean, the Rams went into Seattle 
I had probably the loosest grip on as far as how I thought the game was going to, going to play out. Obviously, the, the Browns' result was more surprising. But I really didn't know how the Rams were, were going to fare uh, with their quarterback situation going into that one. And then Wolford gets hurt, and you're like, this might this might be over in a hurry. But Goff, busted thumb and all, um, he didn't really lead them to the win more, more so that just he, he didn't lose it for them, and the defense was able to, to win it for him. I don't know. Maybe – we can just quickly dive in real quick on on your thoughts on Seattle and how things kind of unraveled there, and then we'll get to the Rams uh, versus the Packers. But what I mean, what happened late? See, I mean, it was a total Jekyll and Hyde act uh, from the Seattle offense late in the season. Yeah, that was a pretty surprising turn. The way, not just the way that game went, but generally the the second half of the season. And I can't claim to have foreseen much of it at all. Like I. Was always, of course, not throw 34, 35 times a game. And I thought that would, you know, really take things to the next level. And I think even my version of it was a little bit wrong because it's like Russell Wilson overall is a great quarterback. That's not something that can be seriously debated ever, really. But the idea that he's truly just perfect as a quarterback and like has no actual flaws, I think we're seeing now that that isn't true and, and people you know, other people than me have have kind of foreseen that uh, I didn't foresee this as I mean to say, like other people did foresee this better than me. But Wilson really isn't that great at like the intermediate underneath stuff. Maybe it's because of his height. I think that could be part of it. Uh, it also might just be like he just doesn't process that level of depth as easily. He, do, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't interpret it as effectively as he does when he's looking further down the field at a more wide open field, things like that. I think it could have made it easier on him, given him a better shot if they had real intermediate targets like Tyler Lockett can do it, but is so predisposed to dominating that part of the field. It's like that's just the structure of the offense where he mm-hmm. runs. They got so many reps going to the guys like Greg Olson, Jacob Hollister that are just zero reps like they're just they just do nothing productive on those plays and they run in the part of the field where Wilson couldn't get anything going so I I do think you know especially like with Josh Allen having this total change in nature by adding Stefan Diggs to the lineup I can imagine a scenario where it's like Russell Wilson has a instead of Jacob Hollister and Greg Olson he has like whatever Hunter Henry or something and things turn out very differently because it's even Wilson with whatever deficiencies he has, maybe that quality of a target in that part of the field gets him over the hump. I think that actually is more likely than the other way around. Um, but it's hard to know. And I, again, I can't claim to have foreseen this whole thing. I thought generally the offense would take off and Russell Wilson would generally, uh, thrive with the exception of just like, you know, incidental anomalous bad games here and there. And it turned out to be like a structural defect, I think. And I, I know some people were freaking out because like, oh, my God, Pete Carroll says they need to run the ball more. And I saw some other people saying like Tyler Lockett was quoted as saying, yeah, the defense has started playing us differently after we stopped running less. And they were like, oh, bro, uh, Pete Carroll screwed up. He didn't adjust enough. And I think Tyler Lockett was actually saying the same thing as Pete Carroll. Was like, no, we only work as well as we do the way you came to understand us uh, as, as like me, DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, Russell Wilson. You came up with all these idea these assumptions about like our our efficiency how we always play like our nature is to always dominate unless someone doesn't let us throw and catch the ball and that just turned out to be wrong it was was like no we we only are that way that you came to know us when the running game has this much of a share of the offense and that when we give the defense these running play looks and when we don't 
they stop looking for them and then they start to cover us differently. And it's mm. insane that we can't that we have to talk about these things that these these numbers idiots just refuse to accept the the possibility of like psychological details and like uh you know di- the, the, just the mere concept of dynamics in in sports like the idea that like a return can't diminish as it increases in volume like these were all things that these people were hostile to and uh you know not that i f- foresaw how bad the seattle offense would tank in the second half but lockett is right and pete carroll as much as he's a goofy guy who's wrong in other ways is also right it's yeah it's it's been a, w- a wild turn and and yeah you, you covered a lot of ground there of of course but yeah i mean it it's not as simple as it, if you reach a certain threshold as far as your your run pass split all your problems will be solved. It's a lot more complex than than that, and I think that that gets a little bit glossed over. Again, how how things went as sourly as they did late in the season, I, it will kind of remain a mystery whether it is the, how they mix the run in the past or the looks or, or what have you, or just a kind of drop off in, in in sharpness from these guys over the course of the season. I, I thought you brought up an interesting point too, where. You know that that narrow target tree. It was it was good for for fantasy purposes, like just knowing that the ball is going to either Tyler Lockett or DK Metcalf. Uh, if you're targeting the Seahawks offense, you know for your draft or, or for DFS or, or that sort of thing. But as far as how it functions in the real world in the NFL, you know when you only have those two guys and those two guys, you know, draw the bulk of the coverage and you don't have that that third option underneath to to kind of reliably move the chains and you're getting you know over dependent on these deep shots you know that that's a bad thing so that i do think that like you were saying seattle needs to find some sort of third option that, that can work the underneath stuff yeah and before i think that running game was what functioned as you know the closest thing and so uh they didn't have that middle of the field intermediate underneath passing game element so the running game had to be the closest thing to it and mostly worked and I know that I know that there's this idea that like oh play action just works magically no matter how good the running game is or how committed how, how plausible the running threat actually is in an offense and that also is ridiculous. It's like even if the Seahawks aren't that great at running the ball, if you as a defense have to go into watching tape of opposing offenses and as as a defensive coordinator you look at the personnel tendencies of an offense and the play calling tendencies of an offense, just the fact that they expect our team to run a ball run the ball a certain amount is going to actually change like the disposition of the coverage like that it's it's not that uh you can just start doing you know fake handoffs on the play action as a team that never runs the ball and expect the defense to bite really hard on any of those fakes so even though chris carson wasn't exactly you know jamal lewis back there it's like he was only a good running back uh the fact that they were always committed to running with him and couldn't be called on that bluff did force the secondary to always lean a certain way that was favorable for those receivers. And then this year they kind of tried to have it uh, where where they, you know, they still ran the ball a little bit, but the defense stopped caring the way that they used to. And uh, that that was always part of the formula of Wilson's success. Defense is caring about the run. They stopped caring and things changed. And uh, now that Seahawks have a chance to counter adjust, uh, it's not like they're, you know, done. They're not toast or anything. Uh, it's just that they have to, actually work through the dynamics of it all and and, and find uh, where the actual opportunity lies at this point otherwise i mean part of their 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 failings in the second half might have also been uh, just attributable attributable to how good the rams defense was yeah no absolutely i mean yeah they, they played the rams twice uh from week 10 uh through the end of the regular season and then into the wild card so let's use that as a jumping off point 
is this Rams defense going to be good enough to go up to Green Bay and slow down this Green Bay offense that, that also in its own right kind of has a narrow distribution tree as far as its weapons are concerned? Yeah, it's pretty interesting to me, and I don't uh, – I, I guess I guess we got to look at the you know 58% according to covers, 58% of the betting volume on the public is uh, on the Packers covering – uh, some combination of six and a half and seven and only 42% on the Rams. That, that does strike me as a, as a big spread for, for the Packers here, even though I don't think golf is good. And the idea of golf with a broken thumb doesn't make me feel any better. I just worry about what happens when Matt LaFleur's play calling and, and this uh, innovative scheming that he's done all year, this, this, this great work that he's done staying ahead of the defenses that he's faced. It's it's, it has to be at some level uh, as simple as Matt LaFleur is guessing what the defensive coordinators that he's going against are going to do. And he's right. And the opposing defensive coordinators are trying to guess what he's going to do and they're guessing wrong. And so I don't, I can't claim to know what traps he's laying or, or how he's arranging all of this, but I don't think there's any way he can arrange it here insofar as Devonte Adams and the automatic production he's given all year. They're getting Devontae Adams. It's it's kind of like how you saw Brian Dable, you know, getting Stephon Diggs against TJ Carey last week. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what the hell? How come I, you know, remember Des Bryant going through his whole Cowboys career, seeing like three guys on him every snap and, <laughs> you know, all these other turd receivers going against single coverage. Why is it why is it that on some teams the good players get good matchups and in other teams the good players have everything working against them? And that's LaFleur and that's Dable. That's that's defenses don't want that to happen. The defenses are going the defensive coordinators are going in thinking, okay, what we can't do this week is let Devontae Adams get matched up against Duke Shelley in uh, one-on-one coverage and then it happens anyway and they can't there's like nothing they can do to stop it because it's just like the motion the personnel lines up a certain way and they're like oh god they got Devonte on duke shelley again and like that that keeps happening over and over even though it's the biggest fear of every defensive coordinator going against the packers there's no way for lafleur to get that here because ramsey will just follow adams there's not going to be a schematic detail in the Rams, with a, a few exceptions maybe, like if they do some kind of like zone blitz sort of thing. Um, with the exception of that, Devontae Adams cannot be schemed open here. He just has to beat Jalen Ramsey, and I don't think he will. I, I think Devontae Adams is a great receiver, but I think J- Jalen Ramsey is a much better corner than Devontae Adams is a receiver. And I think we've seen enough of a sample of Devontae Adams working without LaFleur in this, you know, LaFleur has just been out of his mind all year as far as his game planning and his general schematic uh, arrangements. He hasn't gotten enough credit for it. I didn't expect him to be this good. I, I actually kind of was starting to get a little bit anxious about him uh, before this year, but he's he's gone off on another level uh, and made Devontae Adams a better, a more productive player than he is uh, strictly on the basis of his quality, in my opinion. Uh, so, with that said, uh, even if Jalen Ramsey does slow or stop Devontae Adams, Rodgers is still good. And Lafleur, or at least I would be surprised if Lafleur can be this good all year. And then in the scenario of having a Jalen Ramsey like completely fall apart, I can imagine him being a little bit like, ah, crap, this this didn't quite work. Uh, you know, going a couple drives, getting getting a little bit frustrated. But if he were completely at a loss for what to do in the event that Adams faced a shutdown corner. That would surprise me. I feel like he's got enough. Uh, he, he's making these things happen for other players, too. It's like Robert Tunyon is not as good as his efficiency this year. That's LaFleur setting him up for success. Sure. Uh, Marcus Valdez-Scantling, it's like he's he's had some big numbers. 
even though he's not very good. There's 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 a, a general you know trend of just insight and foresight with Lafleur that I, I'm optimistic that he can find something to keep the offense going. And then you know especially with Rodgers being good as good as he is on his own part, that's a big factor in all of this, of course. But I I do worry because Brandon Staley is kind of like a Lafleur McVay type. Uh, in terms of how well he stands out, how how ahead of the game he is as a defensive play caller and schemer. So he's gotten a lot of guys in that defense to overachieve all year. You can't really find someone in the Rams defense who's played badly this year, even though they have a bunch of nobodies at a, at a few spots. Uh, it's like there's there's the star level guy like Ramsey and, those, the, you know, John Johnson's good. Uh, Leonard Donald. Floyd is fine. Yeah, Donald, of course. Um, but it's like Leonard Floyd having this big year. That's Staley. Ha- I love it. I, I, as a Georgia guy, I, I absolutely oh, yeah, love Leonard Floyd going no, it's off. It's good to see him succeed. Uh, but yeah, it's like it, it, Lafle- the insight that Le- has gotten Lafleur as far as he has this year might get neutralized by that of Staley. And maybe in that scenario, it still just comes down to, well, then it's Rodgers versus Goff. And guess what? And yeah, right. th- that's that seems straightforward enough. But a full touchdown seems like a lot to me, and I I don't feel I wouldn't I wouldn't feel safe generally as a Packers fan or someone betting on the Packers just to win. It's like you you gotta you know just just kind of understand that the Ramsey factor will force Green Bay to be something that they haven't been all year. And the Rams, yeah, they're busted. Like Goff can't really throw, and he could he could just be so bad that that maybe that's what explains the spread. Like Goff just having to throw the ball at some point, and it's like, man, he wouldn't have been good in this game anyway. It's not even supposed to be that bad of weather in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. but Goff, um, I, I pulled up the splits, the Yahoo If it's splits. below 40, I'm sure he's bad. What is yeah, it? Yeah, actually, it's like pretty much all of Goff's good games in the NFL have occurred in either domes or 70-plus. Like, he, it's not even, you don't even need to go to 40 or 30. It's like once he goes under 60, he turns into uh, like a as many touchdowns as interceptions kind of guy. Uh-oh. And that's, that's before you factor in a broken throwing thumb. So... Cam Akers needs to carry the Rams offense. Like, I don't think McVay can pull any tricks because, uh, you know, it's like Kevin King is terrible. That's who you have to go at in, in the Green Bay secondary. But Jair is not letting anything happen. The The run defense, you know, it's not good. But some of that is philosophical, like a philosophical, uh, you know, trade off that they accept. Like, we'll just let the run kind of be a problem as, as long as we can get our sacks and our turnovers. And they've generally made that model work. But in a game like this, if they see that Goff can't throw the ball, and why would we think Goff can throw the ball? It's like he struggles enough as it is. His thumb is broken. I think in that scenario, you can expect the Packers' run defense to look a little better because it's the first time they're actually really caring about it. If they determine that Cam Akers is the only thing they need to stop, then I think they can stop Cam Akers, basically. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good point. And I, I think that, yeah, that that is like the, the Rams' path to to success is um you know playing a ball control style having long drives sustained by the by the run game uh because yeah golf and obvious passing situations if the packers can routinely get the rams into those um with that secondary personnel with you know with some playmakers like uh, jair like uh, darnell savage like that yeah that could easily be something that that just kind of implodes the Rams offense and prevents them from from scoring over 20 points and you know that that ends up being the being the thing because I as good as the Rams defense is I don't see it holding the Packers like below 24 points yeah that's uh it's probably a good idea to not bet the Packers being under 24 in any particular game with the way they're playing this year for whatever it's worth 
Darius Williams and Troy Hill have both played really well at corner aside from Jalen Ramsey. But I still think the Packers, if they're going to throw the ball, need to go at those two. And I think they have a way to do it. Not because they have good enough quality receivers that, that are better quality than those corners. But the problem for Darius Williams and Troy Hill is they are both small, especially Darius Williams. He's like five, nine and a half, 180. Troy Hill is like five, 10, 511, 185, something like that. Alan Lazard is 6'5", 225, 230-ish. Equinemius is 6'5", 220-ish. Those two have to do something against those two corners if the Packers are going to cover, in my opinion. Okay, no, that that definitely checks out. You know, the, yeah, the other guys stepping up if Adams is kind of just locked in that battle um, with Ramsey. And what, one last uh, detail to touch on when it comes to this Packers offense and specifically the offensive line. Uh, I know David Bakhtiari, he suffered a torn ACL. Yeah, um, that's how good. <laughs> big of a concern is that for you? It's pretty big. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if if going into any deep drops is how you would attack the Rams defense anyway. It's like you don't you don't want to get your hopes up for throwing deep on the Rams just because Aaron Donald exists. Like that's yep. that's something where you should be like realistically I don't think we should be taking seven steps seven step drops this week. And so back to Yari being out would be more of a problem if if there were a viable deep ball sort of offense and if if they needed it in this game but I don't think they need it I think in fact some of their best chances are to just dare Darius Williams and Troy Hill to get up really close against Lazard and Equinemius and just toss it up to one of them see if one of those corners in press man like falls off of the tackle attempt and you know get a get a big chunk gain or a touchdown that way so I don't think Bakhtiari will matter in this game and and uh, it would matter more if if um if it were like a proper shootout kind of environment, I guess. Okay, that that, that makes sense. So yeah, the, the Packers probably just eschewing that those deep drops anyway lessens that impact. But they might have to, if they get past the Rams on Saturday, you know, they, they are going to have to continue with, with that sort of philosophy. Against the Saints or Buccaneers, that could be a problem, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So uh, something to look for down the line assuming that the Packers do come away with the win uh, yeah the the Rams I, I wish they had a better quarterback situation because the, the defense is really I mean borderline championship level it's just uh feels like we're, we're not getting the, the full Rams I mean it's the best in the playoffs and probably the league I guess yeah it's it's nuts to to watch them it was like surreal watching them uh make uh that Seattle offense struggle the way that it did a week ago all right let's move on uh, we got the Saturday night cap. We got the Bills playing host to the Baltimore Ravens. Bills two and a half point favorites in this one on on Bet MGM. Um, we got an over under at fifty and a half at some books, somewhere uh, as low as forty nine and a half. Uh, the line hasn't moved too much. It's it's moved about a half a point. It looks like from from the opening where the Bills were two and a half point favorites. Now it's up to three, but it's kind of moved around over the course of the week. Um, a lot has been made of the the potential for you know Lamar Jackson having not played in in really crazy conditions before. It doesn't look like Buffalo is going to be that bad as far as the precipitation goes on Saturday. It could it could be you know north of fifty percent chance of or <laughs> precipitation on Saturday night when this game is going on. But that might just skew the Ravens more towards the run, and that that's been a problem for anyone that's gone against them this year. Um, Give it. Give me your just kind of general thoughts on this game as we get uh, started breaking this one down. Well, it's 
Yeah, it's a tough matchup for me to figure out. I, I definitely have you know a lot of respect for both teams, both defenses, and at least in you know s- certain respects. Like I, I don't think either defense is truly complete, but I, I think they're both good at certain things. Uh, I, I also have a lot of respect for Sean McDermott as a, as a defensive play caller, Brian Dable as an offensive play caller. In the case of Buffalo, whereas with Baltimore, I don't. I, I know John Harbaugh is one of the best head coaches in the league, and and his his record speaks for itself, but I don't think they have any next level um, like minds behind him helping make his job any easier. And uh, I don't think he can make a a team unit like the defense overachieve the way Sean McDermott can being a defensive guy. So there's certain kind of institutional advantages the, the, the bills have even before you count for home field. And that all might matter. It probably does in some sense. I just don't know. I don't really know how to handle any of that. And going into this game, you know, it's aside from the home field narrative for the Bills, you are going to have that I, that stuff like you were kind of talking about of can Lamar Jackson handle an environment like this? It's like, first of all, Baltimore, when it gets cold, isn't like nothing. You know, it's not, it's not for that. Yeah, it's, it's, bad it's not exactly sometimes. Florida or anything. So I don't think Lamar Jackson is just going to go there and be like, oh, my God, what is this snow stuff? <laughs> uh, but it, it's not just that. But the more that it gets the, toward precipitation and or fog, which it seems like fog might be a bit of an issue, too, that's stuff that helps the Ravens, in my opinion. And it would help or at least it would, maybe it wouldn't help Josh Allen, of course, if it were windy, but it would hurt Lamar Jackson more than it would hurt Allen. And so I would I would call wind uh, something that would aid the Bills and precipitation fog, something that would aid the Ravens because Josh Allen has been very good this year, of course, and, and he can keep being very good in this template that they've built for him that, he, that he's uh, done so well in and defenses haven't yet found a, an effective uh, like long-term adjustment to respond to. But if it's if you can't see more than like 40 yards and if, if there's some fog in, in between and if it's if it's raining – and you're going against a good defense with all of that, that might be enough to make it a little different on Allen. And the, the visibility is a big part specifically because you you give up these plays to Allen that you do largely because you have to defend the whole field. And it's hard because it's like he he has these credible threats that he can issue toward, you know, your deep coverage. He can he can hit the pylons throwing the ball from his own 20 probably, you know? So it's like yeah. you have to cover all of that. And the fact that you do drains your pass rushing resources, drains your robber resources, your spy resources. It drains uh, the freedom with which you can do anything in particular. And if Allen loses that threat, he has to just kind of bluff that threat. And if you call that bluff, then he's just down to playing with a smaller field. And then the whole calculus changes. The whole deal is is off if if the field shrinks, you know? And that's that could be particularly the case if the Ravens' defense plays well. And I don't know what to think there. I mean... We know Humphrey is great. We know Peters is good. Smith is usually pretty good at corner. But I don't know if there's anything realistically you can do about Stefan Diggs with like press man coverage. Like I don't I don't think it's a good idea to even try it. Mm-hmm. I think you'd be better off just doing kind of like uh like a man match sort of thing with him where you're giving him a lot of help because uh, Humphrey a lot of help because if you if you just say like uh, hopefully Humphrey beats Diggs like he probably won't. That's Diggs I don't believe that Diggs is the best receiver in the league, but he is the best receiver in the league against press man coverage. You can beat him or you can contain him in certain ways and and Diggs can't succeed in certain ways that someone like DK Metcalf would. 
um, if you're going against like a, an effective disciplined zone coverage and, and people are doing the handoffs well and people are are understanding their leverage correctly while keeping eyes on the quarterback and really doing the whole thing well. But in terms of just press man coverage, there is no one you should do that against less than Stefan Diggs. And so I don't think Humphrey – if they go press man coverage, then Humphrey is basically eliminated from the game calculus for me. Like I don't think he can affect the game in that capacity. So they need to get a little bit clever. They can't just do man, press man, or at least if, you know, maybe if it's foggy enough, maybe then they can get away with that. But they, like I was saying last week with the Colts, and the Colts did pull it off at a couple points. And, you know, even even with these big games in some of the last month of the year, Allen has had certain plays where he just narrowly misses disaster and other plays that turned out badly that, like, get called back on penalty, things like that. Uh or, or he otherwise, like, you know, we just forget that the bad play happened because he made a big touchdown throw the next play. And that's not to take any of the credit away from Allen. It's just to acknowledge, like, you if that kind of stuff, his bad plays can happen, then they can happen in smaller samples where the the correct the, the correction play doesn't get to occur, you know? And so that's that's something that I have to be that's that's something that the Ravens have to bring out. They have to confuse him, they have to get him to make his bad play, and then they have to kind of you know, get the ball back, get points before they give the ball back to him. Because yes, you have to assume he will make that big throw the next time out. If you, if you get a play on Allen, you have to assume you were lucky to get it and you have to make something productive happen with it. Uh, the Colts didn't quite do it. It was like the dropped, uh, Jonathan Taylor and then the dropped Naheem Hines later in the game, uh, passes might've made a difference. I know there were certain other anecdotal ways that the the Colts kind of failed to capitalize in that game. Um, but if the Ravens can arrange that same scenario that the Colts did, I would consider the Ravens, at least on their, I don't know, because of the Lamar factor, I guess, I would consider the Ravens more likely to capitalize on the things that the Colts didn't. But it's still much more easier said than done, you know, getting even as far as the Colts did. Okay. And then just flipping it over when the Ravens have the ball. Um, it's interesting to me that that the Bills. I mean, we we've talked about this throughout the course of the year, but the Bills' defense might be living a little bit on its reputation. I know it played better towards the end of the season, but uh, the end of the year metrics: twenty sixth against the run in YPA allowed, twenty um, seventh in terms of rushing touchdowns allowed. That that seems like an obvious weak point for them, and that's not a great weak point to have when you're going up against the best rushing team in football. Yeah, I think that the Bills defense is generally good and I think I think part of uh part part of the big picture with them, you have to keep in mind they're doing a lot of money ball stuff too. Like they they're they're going with Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer at safety, which both of them are former corners and the the fact that they have that corner like coverage acumen makes them useful pieces to Sean McDermott in ways that they aren't useful to other teams. It's like in other teams' defenses, Poyer. I don't know. Poyer is really good. It's not like he's a product of the system or anything. It's just right. that I don't know if he can play in other systems when even by cornerback standards, he's small. Uh, he's, he's an amazing player. Like instincts are off the charts. He's he's been a dominant player as a corner at Oregon State and now in the NFL as a safety, but you're still a skinny small cornerback who's playing safety well and i don't know if how how well he can he can hold up against someone like mark andrews especially and i think there's going to be a bit of a funnel toward andrews because i would have to imagine tredavious white will shadow marquise brown outside and i don't want to say marquise brown is just going to get shut down i think tredavious white is like 10th best corner something like that he's not anywhere near jalen ramsey he's not anywhere near james bradbury let Mm -hmm. alone 
Jalen Ramsey, but he's still very good. And, uh, you know, Marquise Brown could could well be very good, too. But he, he doesn't have an obvious advantage here. He he could, especially if weather is making things difficult like that, that can't be. I don't know. I, I'm assuming for a tiny receiver, bad weather. You know, I don't know. It's like maybe they. Maybe they're maybe they're tougher to keep track of, and they're you know they're they're like you know gnats or something, and you lose them easier if you have to slide on a wet field or something like that. I don't really know what it means for Marquise Brown, but generally I would want a bigger receiver if we're talking bad conditions because it's you know the the pass is probably going to be a little less accurate too. So it's Des Bryant season, is what you're saying? <laughs> no, it's Miles Boykin season. <laughs> there we go. Uh, no, not really. I just think it's going to have to be Mark Andrews basically, and I I know that McDermott knows that and i know he's not going to just be like surprised like who's that if they you know start throwing at mark andrews but i also don't know if if he has the tools to deal with andrews uh while also properly accounting for the lamar threat uh running the ball because part of what made andrews and marquise brown do much better in 2019 was that uh, was that they had uh the downfield trend from from the safeties and the, the outside linebackers the, the the slot defender all that downward pressure toward lamar jackson to contain or cut off his rushing threat that he posed was specifically the trade-off that freed up mark andrews a lot of the time down the seam and so just stopping mark andrews like truly shutting him down might leave yourself open a little bit to what threats lamar poses as a runner and i don't know how it translates you know the 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 run defense struggles of the bills versus conventional eye formation type running and stuff like Mm -hmm. that i don't know if they would do any better against the more uh post modern run fits the run setups that the the ravens use maybe they would do better maybe they would do worse i have to assume that it's not their favorite thing to do i they have struggled against the run both of this year and last year and I don't know why seeing Lamar Jackson would make them better at it, you know. So that's the way that I I feel like the Ravens need to make it happen is like Lamar needs to just, you know, stay cool. He needs to get help from his running backs. And I, I think he will get it. Uh, and he needs to get Andrews going because I don't think you can – realistically, I don't think you can expect Brown to do a whole lot. Boykin I don't think can do much against any defense. Uh, Willie Sneed, maybe he, you know, makes some clutch plays for you, but you can't plan on him doing anything. You have to assume certain things just aren't going to be there. And if, if they are, you have to understand it as a bonus rather than, you know, something that you can bank on happening more than once. No, that's a good point. That, that's been true throughout the course of this entire season, dating back to last year, really. Um, yeah, anything that Sneed can give you is just kind of uh, cherry on top and you, you need to get one of or both brown or andrews rolling and i think you have it right where uh this isn't a particularly good setup for for marquise brown and it could funnel things over towards andrews so so yeah i'm, I'm expecting andrews to be a big x factor um in the ravens passing game uh just rounding it out um any kind of last prediction or or lean as far as how this game shakes out uh i really don't i think that's I think that the weather could prove a big part of it. If it's if it's more windy and less, uh, you know, damp, foggy, that helps Josh Allen because the wind won't affect him. The wind will affect Lamar Jackson. If it's not windy, then it's like you know, Lamar Jackson would be subject to the same thing as the fog as Josh Allen. Like he's he's not as likely to throw deep, but that's okay with Lamar because he his running threat that he poses in the calculus doesn't 
need the 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 throwing threat to 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 exist as it does. It's like Josh Allen's a great runner as we know him. I don't know if he would be as great of a runner if he had to play on a 20-yard field all the time and if defenses defended him less with a spy and more with like a a, a four-man bracket scheme because they're not worried about you know the deep pass or because they're so worried about the run that they just feel compelled to do that. You play those two quarterbacks very differently, and I, I think the fog, vi- visibility, and, and, and rain, I think, would take more away from Allen than Jackson. No, that's, that is a really good point, too, just to, to add on on top of it. I, I do expect the Bills to win. I don't know if they cover. I mean, it's not a huge number. Obviously, they just need to win by a field goal. That could certainly happen, but um, I do expect the, the Bills to advance to the AFC Championship game. I, I think that the Ravens a little bit flawed on defense, um, and I think the way that Allen's been playing um, of late the, this season, really this entire season, uh, I think kind of just gives that and them being at home. I think gives the final edge to to Buffalo. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I don't know what I, I I can't even make a pick because I just I just see like certain alternative scenarios occurring, but I can't tell which of them is more likely than another. It's like mm-hmm. I, I can pick from four outcomes, but I can't pick one. I guess if I have to pick, I'll just say, uh, I don't know, Ravens. I don't I don't know. I don't care. Well, we'll see. I just uh, think I should. they should be able to run, you know. And I I don't I'm I know Josh Allen has been great, but the idea that he uh, always has the same conditions that he has all year. I think gets less likely the further you go into the playoffs. And sure. uh, it, I'll say this. If if there is a fog, then I'll go Ravens. Okay. All right. So we're, we're on to Fog Watch 2021 heading into this weekend. Before we get on to our next game, we got a message from our friends over at BetMGM. Sports bettors know that magic happens when you turn a hunch into action and apply the right amount of expertise. That's why BetMGM has teamed up with RotoWire to offer new BetMGM customers a free six-month RotoWire subscription when they place their first bet. Register on the BetMGM app or website. Use promo code ROTO, that's R-O-T-O, to claim your free subscription. Once you make your first sports wager, you'll receive a season's length of RotoWire's unmatched sports insights. Find out why BetMGM is the king of sports books by signing up and placing your first bet today. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. If you're 21 years of older uh, of age to wager Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, Nevada, Tennessee, and West Virginia only, please gamble responsibly. If you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado and Nevada and 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey and West Virginia. In Tennessee, call or text the red line. That's 800-889-9789. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. Promotional offer not available in Nevada. All right, let's get on over to Sunday's action Kicking things off for us, we got the Browns traveling to Kansas City to face the the top seeded Chiefs. Chiefs ten point favorites in this one, seen it as high as as ten and a half somewhere. Um, but yeah, g- generally this line has settled in around ten. Browns coming off the surprise performance of the entire wild card weekend, going into Pittsburgh and just blowing their doors off. You, it had very very similar vibes when Pouncey's snap went over the head oh, of, of Roethlisberger as that 2013 season Super Bowl with, with Manning. Where that the, was wild. Yeah, that was so wild. When that <laughs> when that snap happened, uh, I that was for me at least a very uh, George Michael like it's happening, isn't it? Kind yes. of moment. <laughs> 
<laughs> it really was. Um, so that was that was something else, and and you know that things continued. Um, the Steelers kind of just kept digging themselves some holes. All those turnovers from Roethlisberger. Um, the Browns took advantage. I mean, it, it got like a little bit interesting in the in the second half, but I never felt like the Browns were in serious. At least, I mean, as someone who's not a Browns fan, I, I understand if you are a Browns fan getting <laughs> extremely nervous during the second half of that game. But I think as more of a neutral observer, um, it, it felt like the Brown the Browns had that one pretty much wrapped up. They just had to finish it yeah. off, and, and they did. Um, but Going into Kansas City and beating Patrick Mahomes is, is about as tall of an order as you could possibly um, give to somebody. So this is going to be tough for the Browns. Yeah, I I can't remember who it was. I, I feel bad. Like I'm not trying to get mileage out of somebody else's content or whatever. But I remember seeing some tweet earlier in the week where someone was like, the worst part of being a Browns fan is uh, I can't remember how it goes. Basically, they were like, "I still think that we're. I, f- I still feel on some level like we're going to lose that game." Oh, the oh, it, there like was like an onion it. post. It was like area Browns fan worried the team will blow lead from game that oh, happened right, four onion. days ago. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was a good one. And it was like, man, I, they're right. They should they should be a little worried about it. They shouldn't yeah. feel safe yet. <laughs> There's still time for it to get uh, somehow overturned, but. I, I I think at once it, w- it was like a collapse of the Steelers' offense. Yes, it wasn't so much that the Browns really deserve all the credit for it. They deserve credit for the win. Like they, they, they won the game. It's not like the Steelers truly lost it. But the degree to which the, the, the point spread happened early on in the game is something that can only be explained by one team just falling apart. And... You know, a, a team worse than the Browns could have, A, not taken advantage to the degree that they did, or B, blown it anyway later, as as a past version of the Browns probably would have in both senses. But they didn't. They, you know, they kept it together. They they let Roethlisberger spin his wheels and pile up a bunch of meaningless numbers and get within 13, and then they kicked them back down, you know, a couple minutes later. Mm-hmm. So that's stuff that bad teams don't do. And I, I think that, you know, that... The, the Browns are rightfully considered big underdogs against the Chiefs, but I don't think it's a game that the Chiefs should take lightly. And I, I don't know how I feel about 10 points either, because when you're talking 10 plus points, it's like you got you to make some backbreaking plays on offense or you have to make reliably, uh, you know, chain moving drives. And I don't know how much either of those is likely against the Browns, especially when for those 10 points, you you also have to keep in mind like the opposing team's tendencies. And for the Browns, the way they win is pretty clearly to sit on the ball. If they yep. get any points on the board, it's like they if they get a lead, they have to sit on it. And not not in the sense of like, you know, going into a shell truly, but it's like they they get points on the board by running the ball anyway. So it's like they, they're not gonna open it up if they if they get some points and if they get the, some points, then you have to start worrying about the Chiefs getting, you know, one or two fewer drives than they do in, in most of your game projections. So that's just some ways that the, the Browns can make it close. And then you wonder, you know, that we know the Chiefs this year and last year aren't great against the run. A little bit of that, though, is kind of like the Packers thing where they're like, go ahead and run. We're just, you know, we're going to try to let the clock run out here. We're going to score in you know 90 second drive with Pat Mahomes when we get the ball back, and if if you get if you get into field goal range, we consider that like fine. We're, we'll just deal with that. And in this environment, going against the Browns' offense, they're not going to have any. It's kind of like a you know the Packers going against the Rams. It's like 
well, we, we don't care about stopping the run, but if there's nothing else to do, maybe we can care about stopping the run and maybe we can do it. I'm not convinced uh, that they can. I mean, if, if they stop the run against a juggernaut rushing team like the Browns, I think it's because guys like Chris Jones blew up the line of scrimmage. It's like I don't think those linebackers really do all that much. Spagnuolo is a good defensive coordinator, but there's, there's a lot of just uh, role players hanging around, you know. And it, these are guys who are not accustomed to having to stop the run in high-stakes situations. So if the game isn't a blowout, then it can get pretty dangerous, I feel like, for that Chiefs defense because – the, the Browns offensive line bl- blocks pretty well for its own part. I don't know what the deal with Jack Conklin is. I don't know if he's going to play. Yeah, we got know. we got a lot of guys on the injury report on, on, for that Browns offensive line. I mean, Conklin, Teller, and Treader um, all listed as quest- questionable as of right now. Sorry, do you happen to have the daily practice logs in front of you? Um, let's see. So uh, for Conklin, there's nothing past uh, Tuesday, it doesn't look like. So I, I don't know if they have like the official – um, stuff out yeah, well as long as those guys there. as long as they're not going into the game as like game time decisions who didn't practice i'm going to assume their injuries are are basically being managed i feel like it was the same thing last week where there was at least three guys and uh definitely teller at least yeah. who, who were who was on the list and it's like he seems like he's fine so if those guys are out there then you have a plus offensive line going against at best in my opinion kind of like a median run defense and I, I think Kareem Hunt is good, and I think he's good enough to hurt the Chiefs' defense. But the Chubb part of this is really what makes it all interesting because, and and I don't know how much the, most people are are able to like like consider or, or sorry foresee the, the kind of effect that a player like Chubb can have because it's like there there used to be more players like Chubb in the NFL back when it was more of a running league. The guys who, uh, you know. When when you see them get the ball more than fifteen times, it's just like you know you're just in a really really bad spot. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, I think Chubb is is pretty unique for for the rushing the, the kind of automatic rushing production that he provides, and not just the 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 reliability of it, but the the fact that he can be the guy who breaks like eighty yard runs too. Like so, so much of the the hostility to running the ball in the modern. NFL, you know, scholarship or whatever. I understand a lot of it, and I understand the the the, the idea of like you know the big plays afforded by throwing the ball and how how those factor in. But you, you have to also understand like Nick Chubb is not another running back, and those big plays that passing lends more uh, probability of than running the ball generally. Those general rules don't apply as much to him, so it's a dangerous spot. For the Chiefs, and if if Baker Mayfield can play as well as some of these newer throwing qu- quarterback production value metrics say he can, then the Chiefs are in a lot of trouble. However, I haven't been impressed with Baker Mayfield at any point this year, and mm. I know that his numbers are clean. I think those are structural reasons that won't persist in this setting, or, or at least are liable to get negated by Pat Mahomes just you know scoring two touchdowns in the first quarter. It's like the whole Baker Mayfield template is off the table at that point, and he has to be a good player in circumstances that he hasn't been good in. In the well, I guess his rookie year, he I don't know why his rookie year he had a couple, uh, you know, good shootout sort of games. But yeah, this he was year, awesome they, his rookie year. Yeah, this year they've had to keep him on that play action. You know, they had to keep him lightly exposed, and this is a game where 
if if the the Browns defense is anything less than superhuman, Baker Mayfield will have to play in different circumstances than he has all year on the road in a stadium that's known to be pretty harsh to to weaker armed quarterbacks. So I'm I'm kind of concerned for for Baker Mayfield in this setting, but if I'm underestimating him, then I think the Chiefs actually are in quite a bit of danger, certainly in the 10-point sense. Okay, yeah. I mean, it, it is a huge number. Um I, I feel like the the Chiefs play play with fire a little bit uh, as far as turning it off and on uh, at will uh, with, with their like sharpness and, and effort level. But uh, obviously in the postseason, you don't expect them to, to sleepwalk by any means. It is just a, a very large number for for them to be covering. But you know, the last year, what was it? The three playoff games they trailed by ten or more in all of them and won all of them by more than ten points. So I mean, it's, that's the it, thing though. That's those scenarios against the Browns turn out differently than they do against those teams because mm-hmm. Nick Chubb makes you pay for that. If you let that happen, you don't get uh, to to catch back up on, on a few well timed plays. It's just like the guy who doesn't fail is now you, you need him to fail now. You know. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I think that the, the chiefs should be fine. I, I don't know what to expect as far as their running game, but Tyree kill against Denzel Ward is pretty interesting. I don't think Denzel Ward is more than like the seventh, eighth best corner, but a, he might be better than that. And B, even if he's not that great, even if he's not a, you know, Jalen Ramsey or anything close to it, it's one of those deals where he is the guy that you would pick to, to run against Tyree kill. It's it, maybe you wouldn't want him against some more conventional number one receiver, but for a 5'8", 175 pound receiver, Denzel Ward is about as good of a counter as you'll find. Like maybe even a better uh, counter than Jalen Ramsey against Tyreek Hill, just because Denzel Ward doesn't have any excess frame that he needs to, you know, he, he he's lighter and, and, and faster as a result. So yeah. it's, he matches the style of Hill better. Um, Travis Kelsey in every single case that Hill has slowed this year has just picked up the slack effortlessly. So that's probably what happens here, especially when you consider the safety troubles that the Browns have had all year. Yeah. I'm, l- I'm um, looking at the, um, at the Browns defense metrics and, and like their quarterback rating um, for teams throwing up, throwing against their safeties. Um, they rank in the sixth percentile. So, so their safeties are very, very vulnerable and that's very bad, especially if, if I mean, it's again, we've talked about this before, like the, the lesser of two evils or, or the death by, uh, immediate death or like the death by a thousand paper cuts with, with Kelsey. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if Hill becomes less of an option uh, on a play to play basis and things are getting more funneled to Kelsey, that, that becomes a huge problem for Cleveland. Yeah, and aside from Ward, the Browns don't have any good corners. So uh, playoff Sammy Watkins is very much on the table. Oh, true. You can have some DFS exposure to Sammy. I don't know. Maybe. I think it makes a lot of sense for them to to get him going here, both because it will be a bit of a surprise probably to the defense. And he's a free agent, so they should want him to get a good contract uh, so they can get maybe like a fourth or third round comp pick out of it. And, uh, you know, if he if he has uh, playoffs like, you know, Brashad Perriman did his final four weeks of the regular season in 2019, maybe maybe somebody signed Sammy to be their number one receiver or something like that. So I, th- I think it makes a lot of sense. And I, st- I still think Sammy Watkins is good. I, I don't think it shows up in a lot of people's analysis, but a lot of the running that he does in this offense is just kind of like worker bee stuff to set up Kelsey and Tyreek Hill. But it's one of those things where if Tyree Kill missed time and they had to put 
Byron Pringle or whatever in Watkins' role, Watkins would go off playing with the Tyreek Hill usage. It's just that Tyreek is is the number one on this team and and Mm -hmm. being determined their best option. Andy Reid understandably uh, went about it like, well, how can we maximize him? And the answer that he concluded was have Sammy Watkins – you know, running in these parts of the field, drawing these defensive resources so that I can put Kelsey over here, Tyree Kill over here. Um, but Andy Reid does switch things up when he, he he develops deliberately tendencies in his offenses year to year, week to week even. And it, like one example of that is like Tyree Hill's playing so much more slot this year than last year. And uh, I bet next year you're not going to see it look the exact same splits. It's like Andy Reid changes things. He's, he's very careful about that. So that's why you saw Sammy Watkins get saved for the playoffs last year. And then he pulls a fast one on you know the 49ers just sending Watkins downfield after basically not doing it all year. And what do you know? He can do that. Yeah, no, that that's yeah, that that was one of the one of the things that that definitely helped um, the the Chiefs over the hump. So yeah, when, when a guy with the talent of Sammy Watkins is like a, a total afterthought as far as you know what what an opposing defensive coordinator has to really focus his game plan on, then you can really leverage that against the opposing defense and get get Watkins rolling. So uh, definitely interested to see what how he's used on Sunday and for the rest of. of the Chiefs playoff run, assuming it lasts past Sunday. Um, anything else to add here before we get to our last uh, game of the divisional round? If uh, if Baker Mayfield is competitive in this game, I don't know how he does it without Richard Higgins. Like I know Jarvis Landry will probably do something, but I don't know if Jarvis Landry is the kind of guy you can play catch up with. It's like he's he's the guy you uh, I feel like get like a bit of an offensive rhythm going but a bit of an offensive rhythm can't keep up with the Chiefs offense in a race it's like you need to make some plays downfield so I guess Peoples Jones and Higgins like if you're if you're making a lineup that has Baker Mayfield I would want one of those guys as the the stat the the correlating play or whatever the pairing play mm-hmm. uh not necessarily Landry because I, I feel like he's best at in a in a game script where the where the Browns are kind of controlling things okay that, that definitely makes sense as well so the some of those more athletic outside guys would be the play um if you're going after that Cleveland offense for DFS let's go Saints Bucks to finish it out we got the Saints three-point favorites at home in this one they are 2-0 and against the Bucks this year obviously the the week one game was a little bit close and then uh the the prime time game a little bit later on in the season was kind of a boat race in Tampa Bay um with, with the Saints coming out on top very difficult to beat a team in your division three times in a year we know that that's that's very tough to pull off um we got a matchup of old legendary quarterbacks um I, I don't think that there's quite as much as far as weaponry that that Breeze is working with right now versus Brady, and I think Brady, you know, I, I bag on on Tom Brady like probably too much, but um, he's he's throwing the ball a lot better than than say Drew Brees is right now, and his receivers, Chris Godwin, Mike Evans, Antonio Brown, that's just such a lethal trio to be working with, to where. I, I actually am starting to to think that the Bucks come in here and win this one straight up, not just cover. Yeah, that's not a bad bet. And I, I think with Brady, I know it sounds like we go back and forth, but I think it's it's that uh, he has real limitations. It's just that he has had a series of environments where his 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 surrounding players and the defenses that they go against uh, negotiate kind of a, a sort of 
spread of, of the defense and the offense where it does start to line up in a way that suits Brady and especially what Brady wants to see is things what the Washington defense did last week. So I, I said in last week's podcast that the Washington corners are in the, in the general defense is the thing that would be a, a problem for Brady. And I was wrong because I didn't expect them to run so much zone defense. And I know why they did in hindsight. It's like they, they saw they wouldn't have run as many zones if they thought that they were going against more of like a two tight end or a two wide kind of base because they feel fine about Darby and Fuller against the outside receivers, but they don't feel fine about Darby and Fuller against Evans and Brown if they also have to worry about Godwin in the slot going against Jimmy Moreland. So I think they looked at that and said, we have to give Moreland some help. We got to, we got to run more zones because if, if they put Godwin on him, uh, Godwin's just going to beat him all day. And I think that Washington showed why you, you got to just stick to what you actually do well and not try to, uh, let the other team dictate so much. It's like you, you, if you can't dictate things by your own terms, you're just going to lose anyway. So why? What's the point? And going into these soft zones that they poorly ran, and like that Antonio Brown touchdown, it's like that he didn't beat the corner. The corner ran the wrong way, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's like Brady saw it. Brady looked right up. He's like, oh, the corner's going the wrong way. He, he he knew what the zone was. I don't know how he knew it. Like I guess I don't remember what the motion details were before the snap. But Brady knew before the snap what the coverage was. He was watching that one corner when and the corner put his eyes the wrong way, and that was it. Brown didn't beat the guy. Brady didn't even make like that nice of a throw. It's just he correctly guessed that the defense would fail to cover a certain part of the field. And they did because they were so worried, spending so much bandwidth on what to do about all three receivers every play and, and Gronkowski, presumably. And so that was that was what led them to that outcome. It was more Brait who kept beating them, you know? It was yeah. like I know I know Godwin was getting open anyway, but like who that was the thing that was that they that Washington was was foolish to to think was uh, negotiable like Godwin will get open you have to figure out a way to win with that being a, a given and they instead I think uh, compromise themselves uh, by by trying to run a defense that just doesn't really suit them that they didn't have enough reps at and uh, it was Brait who was more so beating them against like linebackers and and uh, you know th- that's 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 at once Brady not being a good thrower necessarily but also those scenarios can keep getting repeated when you when you if defenses are always going to be a little worried about those receivers uh you're not it's not often that you see a a defensive coordinator who just sticks you know to a dominant game plan like they they they'll respond to things like that out of out of the fear of being made to look foolish um but it's like i don't know to me that that zone that they ran was the foolish looking thing is like that brady brady at least was uh you know going against bad defenses when he had his big games against like the Falcons and the lions and this one, it was like Washington just, just called something differently. Um, but I think in this game against the the saints, it's like you, you have a similar pass rush detail as with Washington. Like, I, I don't know if the saints de- uh, defensive line is better than Washington's. Uh, it's deeper. And then it's, you know, cam Jordan, uh, Trey Hendrickson, they've, they've been making a lot of noise. They, they could continue to do so. I don't know what to make, of, of the secondary part of it. Like the, if the saints do need to run a lot of zones, I think they'll do better at it than, than Washington did. Mm-hmm. But it, it runs the same risk because it's like, if you, if you go zone heavy against Brady, that's when he beats you because as much as his throwing ability is, has declined. And as much as his, his movement has declined, his, his mind hasn't like if, if you, if you line up in a way where you're going to have an opening, he'll see it. So 
I, I feel like man coverage is the way to go against these receivers because then Brady just has to guess who's going to get open and like throw the ball to, to places that, you know, the, the spot in the, the defense where only his guy can catch it, like things like that he needs to start doing again. Whereas right now, like he's just making, he's just making the defense spread out, uh, become disoriented. And then when they, they take the wrong steps and he, he sees it every time. So that's, that's going to keep being a problem. And I, I don't, I, I know the risks of going man coverage against that defense, but if, if you go zone heavy, Brady just doesn't, you know, he, he's always gotten by more on his mind than his physical abilities. Oh, yeah. So if, if you let his mind determine more of the game, you're just inviting more risk on yourself. Exactly. Um, is there anything to extrapolate from those first two meetings that this year that, that might uh, apply in this case? I really don't know because I, I don't know if the Buccaneers are, I haven't looked closely enough at their game plans or whatever to see if it's like, Oh, they're doing new things with Antonio Brown because they've, you know, had him in practice for two months now, and they're 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 unveiling these new things. If they're unveiling things in this game, that's probably bad for the Saints. If they're sticking, if they're trying to just repeat something from the first two times, then that's good for the Saints. I don't really know which way it's going to break, but uh, I, I know I, a good countermeasure though that they could have against Antonio Brown. Uh, that would be getting CD Deuce to make him really mad. <laughs> that is, that guy has gone a very novel sort of crazy that I haven't caught. I haven't, I haven't really looked into his whole deal yet. I at the last time I looked was actually in this off season when I was looking through game logs and stuff, and I was like, why the? Or I looked at the Saints depth chart and it's like, what? Who the hell is CD Deuce? And <laughs> like, I clicked on it and I was like, I almost called our like NFL. Uh, our NFL editor, Mike Doria, I was like, Mike, uh, I think you got like a prankster intern or something, yeah. just changing <laughs> player names to turds and stuff <laughs> like that. And he's, I go, I, you know, I, I look at the, the name CD Deuce and I was like, no, that's, that's too, no. this is too weird. There's gotta be some kind of, and yeah, you look it up and it's like, uh, Chauncey Gardner Johnson says, quote, I am CD Deuce now. And it's funny because you know, we, Chad Ochocinco and whatever, other, like Meta World Peace, like that stuff, they got their actual jerseys to say that and stuff. And then uh, like also on the websites and stuff, all the Chauncey Gardner Johnson player profiles still say that. Even Rotowire, like they changed it back from CD Deuce. <laughs> it's just so funny that like no one's no one's even really willing to like listen to him and take so him seriously. Right, you know? can't, you can't do that. But it's like, hey, look, I think he, I believe him. I think his name is CD Deuce. Look at look at this guy. He's he's insane. Um, so yeah, I don't know what's going on with him. I don't remember him being that way at Florida or whatever. He's or a legendary just... trash talker already. But, right, but like he's yeah. he seems to be going into like cuckoo territory. I don't know. Maybe well, that, not. I mean that that's where he meets Antonio Brown. Yeah, t- totally, totally. Sorry. Yeah, I I think you're right. I, I shouldn't have talked so much before saying like yes, you are right. Um, <laughs> I don't know what kind of stuff CD Deuce says out there, but I bet you could get Antonio Brown to go pretty insane. Not that difficult to do it either. Like just just to say anything really like I've, have you seen the stories on that i know you have john but it was yeah. like a rhetorical question does anyone remember who antonio brown is just just ask him how his day is going and he'll probably say something that'll you know be cause for an arrest warrant right yeah i mean it, yeah come at him line up say hot dog is is a sandwich and <laughs> see it all unfold from there just just immediately gets ejected <laughs> 
Just, uh, uh, yeah, so that's that's uh, no joke. They should do that. You're right. They should they should send him specifically after Antonio Brown. Just like, hey, Antonio, how are you? You know, just maybe that's all it takes. I I think it will. So I mean that 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 certainly for for me the expert uh, on on these sort of uh, moronic calls. Uh, that that's what I'll be hey, really looking out for. Cortland Finnegan. Cortland Finnegan got Andre Johnson out of the game. Did he not? See, folks, and man, yeah. Andre Johnson in the news this week for for uh, you know his tweet on the Texans that that reminded me of Cortland Finnegan so I've got like two Cortland Finnegan memories this week weird times it's always good when you remember a guy like Cortland Finnegan <laughs> just getting One of absolutely time. stomped um, all right so looking elsewhere talk to me about this Saints offense versus the Bucks defense. Well, I I really don't know. We've seen so many different versions of the Saints offense this year due to their injuries and uh I would I mean I would guess they're going to try to more or less make the the same Saints offense that existed before this year, you know, the Michael Thomas show. And based on his limited appearances this year, it seems like it's going to work. I mean, I think Michael Thomas is pretty overrated, or at least you know before this year he was overrated. Yeah. Uh, to me, he was always more like the sixth or seventh best receiver in the league, not the first. Certainly not the best in you know best ever record setter type. I mean, I know he set the record, but it's like I, I don't I don't think it's because he was as good as the the record might have looked at a glance. But I think he should be fine here because he's, he's at home. He is good and. Sean Payton's offense is simply built around him. You know, it's like Sean Payton gets some pass catcher going each week. You can tell he kind of does a little, the little floor thing where the play calling isn't so, so much like a, you know, belief system of his. It's just that he starts with the, the the idea of like, we got to get this guy going because this is our best guy. What can we do to keep him free? And it's like, they, they set up just enough, to where the fact that he's running, they, they keep recreating the slant setup. You know, it's like Michael Thomas only runs slants. How does he get open so much? It's like, well, Sean Payton and, and maybe Drew Brees do stuff to set up that slant route, and the defense is as it's happening is like, ah, oh, man, we we're leaving the slant open, but you can't do anything. They snap the ball and they throw it, and then you go out there and the same thing happens. And if if anything, as far as the matchup goes, like. If, if, if it goes badly for Michael Thomas because he's seeing Carlton Davis, that would surprise me. I think I think Carlton Davis is a good corner, but I don't know why he would be a problem for, for Michael Thomas. If anything, it's like with Michael Thomas, you want the defense to fall into the trap of thinking they can get away with press man coverage against him. It, I think Michael Thomas is a guy I would only defend with zones because it's, it's like one of those things. Like, why are you trying to stop him at the line? You know he's only going eight yards. Sit mm-hmm. at eight yards. Just wait for him. And... I, I don't know why. Maybe the, maybe that's easier said than done, too. Maybe there's a reason teams never tried it. Uh, but it seemed to me like that's what the Vikings tried. Get, Mike Zimmer tried it in the, the 2019 playoffs when Drew Brees had such a bad game. They were just running a bunch of like cover two in that one. Um, that's not really in Bowles' nature, I don't think. And and Carl, Carlton Davis, you know, he, ha- he has the alpha mentality at corner. He always wants to be press man coverage with no no help all the time. But I think that's just kind of giving giving it up basically to michael thomas like that's that is what he wants it's the it's the best case scenario for him so do you so you bottom line we think that maybe we see one of michael thomas's best games if not the best game from him we've seen all season uh i don't it it depends on how tampa plays it i think if they go with if they can run zones competently that's how you change it so that you uh 
if you run enough zones and, and as long as you can run them effectively, that is, then you don't let Peyton isolate your matchups like because the matchups don't exist. And and if you're in man coverage, then Peyton knows where you're going because he can do stuff before the snap. Breeze can do stuff before the snap. He figures out what the defense's call is. He knows where on the field there's going to be a guy he can get open. And, and they usually just arrange it such that Michael Thomas is that guy. So that if they go with press man coverage all game, then yes, I think – you basically get vintage Michael Thomas and Drew Brees. And if that happens, you know, maybe that's not enough to stop. Maybe that's not enough to out, uh, you know, outscore this, this Buccaneers offense, the way it's playing right now. But I just, uh, I I think if they go man, if I think if the saints go man coverage on defense as much as possible, and if the, if the Buccaneers go man coverage more than they should on defense, that all suits the Saints, and the more they go away from that, the more worried I get about them. I, I would lean toward the Saints here just because I I, th- I know that Sean Payton's not exactly like a sympathetic figure, but I think he's really a good coach, a better coach than Bruce Arians. I think the ta- I think that the Buccaneers are kind of getting by on um, basically lowering the sliders of the opposing defense. It's like they're just they're just turning off the salary cap in franchise mode and um, you know making the computer make stupid trades so they can get 399 wide receivers and mm-hmm. then uh, let and then at that point the, the the poor quarterback play or the questionable quarterback play becomes immaterial. But I think the Saints have both a good amount of talent and they they actually have uh, you know it's 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 something where Peyton can outsmart Arians, but I don't think Arians can outsmart Peyton. It's like he just needs to have so much better talent that it doesn't matter that he's getting outsmarted. Okay, all right, that that definitely makes sense. That adds up. Um, yeah, the, I'll the lead Saint- Saints. I don't know how I feel about three points. I think it'll be close though. Yeah, it it definitely will. Um, Roto Wires expected score in this game is Saints winning this one, thirty-one to twenty-eight. Um, take that for what you will. Um, yeah, th- this one, it's going to be an awesome one to, to finish off the weekend. I'm really excited for it. Um, I, I just give a slight lean to the Bucks. I, I think the Saints are a bit of a ticking time bomb as far as Breeze is concerned. I, I'm not saying that he's going to, to go full Roethlisberger out there this weekend, but some recent postseason woes coupled with just how he played over the course of this season. I think it, time's ticking. I don't know if this is the, this is where it all kind of comes to a close for him or not, but um, I I give the lean to Brady and the Bucks in this one, even though it's it's on the road. I I, I do think that the Bucks can go in there um, and win it outright. Um, let's go ahead shift our discussion. We kicked off our draft discussion last week with looking at your top five receivers for the upcoming uh wide receiver class the upcoming rookie class in 2021 so we ran through bama guys Devonte smith and uh jalen waddle jamar chase checking in at number one his teammate terrace marshall checking in at number four chris olave of ohio state who we also saw on monday night um was number five so let's get into the next tier of guys we got um let's see our next tier is tier three Starting things out with Amon Ross St. Brown, brother of Equinemia St. Brown, um, USC product, different build, of course, that, than his older brother. He's 6'1", 195, not as small as, as I 
thought. I, I figured that he was more of like a 5'11 type of guy. But yeah, listed 6'1, 195, played in the slot, played outside during his time at USC. Impressive production profile, came in right away and you know led the team in, in receptions, I believe, despite there being you know Tyler Vaughns, Michael Pittman um, already established on that team. He came in and, and still was able to produce right away 60 grabs as a freshman. Um, had some really dominant performances this year as well. So I like him a lot. I know, I know that you do as well, but um, give the people the the correct read as far as Amon Ra goes. Right. So he's not exactly an obvious case. It, it seems like he's high floor in some sense or another, but it's, it's hard to tell what his upside is in the NFL. I mentioned in the write-up with him, one, one guy that comes to mind as far as career trajectory, similar career trajectory, similar traits, similar projected draft capital. Christian Kirk is, is a pretty clear comparison for me. Maybe, maybe they'll have lit a little bit different frames. Uh, I know that Christian Kirk had like the 447, the 446, whatever it was. So he's he's a sub 45 guy. I don't know if St. Brown is. It wouldn't really surprise me whatever way he tests. You look at his yards per catch numbers and it's, it's pretty low. It's usually yes. like 11, 12 yards and Sometimes that means something. Sometimes it doesn't. In this case, it might mean that's just the role. Like that's that's the that's the twelve yard per catch position, the the twelve yard per catch wide receiver position in the USA offense, and maybe that's what he ran. Maybe he could have done other things better. Maybe he would have done worse at other things. I think in Christian Kirk's case, he was generally a slot receiver at A and M when they had a slot rep available. Same same is true with Amon Ross St. Brown, and they were both uh, as true freshmen, like arguably the best receivers on their teams where they were going against older and plenty hyped c- c- teammates. You know, it's like mm-hmm. uh, with Kirk, it was Josh Reynolds uh, with, with Amon Ross St. Brown. He outplayed uh, outproduced anyway, Michael Pittman, even though he's a couple of years younger, Tyler Vaughn's is a couple of years older and he's, he looks like he'll be like a swing backup kind of receiver in the NFL, which is, which is good for St. Brown. Cause if, if Tyler Vaughn's is playing in the NFL and Eamon Ross A. Brown outplayed him, outproduced him at a younger age. That just reduces the number of conceivable ways that St. Brown could be a failure. It's like, how, how could Vaughn's be useful and, and St. Brown not? So if he, if, if St. Brown were to measure in at like six foot, 195 first of all that would be a pretty well-developed frame even even the 6-1 that he's listed at is pretty decent for 195 uh at least you know since he's been listed at around that weight even as a true freshman he might come in a little bulkier a little shorter than what he was listed at and uh i don't i can't remember what kirk was i guess kirk was like 511 200 or something like that and i, I wouldn't be surprised if st brown comes in with something similar uh i'd like to see as with all receivers i'd like to see density if possible the denser you are, the less pressure it puts on your 40 time, your vertical, et cetera. Uh, if you're skinny, you need to do better in those things. Sure. And uh, St. Brown doesn't look skinny, so he should hold up to the slot in that sense. I, I'm not worried about him being like a, you know, getting ragdolled over the middle in the NFL. He's pretty well built for that task. The question is, can he get picked high enough and on a team that runs enough three wide for him to get those slot reps? And we're seeing with Christian Kirk in Arizona. Larry Fitzgerald's just screwed the whole thing up the past two years. And Cliff <laughs> Kingsbury has been too dumb to just simply put his best players on the field. And as much as you can't plan on stuff like that, like you, you can't put a, a, a probability that like, Ooh, this prospect might end up with a stupid coach because guys of this height and weight in the past have been drafted by morons. And so Amon Ross St. Brown's probably going to get a stupid oh. coach too. <laughs> like you can't really prepare for that. If he gets drafted high enough and he gets the reps 
like he's going he's probably going to produce and um it would be a little bit reassuring if if we had if we knew that he could play outside well too just so in the off chance that he does end up going in like the third round uh we could expect him to compete for outside snaps that way and and you know that's you, you don't want to be a specialist who's picked late you know you want you if you're picked late you want to be a player who can contribute a variety of ways so that a variety of injuries or you know general circumstances can get you onto the field for some reps but if you're a slot specialist and you're picked late then you're kind of just a backup and you only get on the field when they go three wide, stuff like that limits your snap count limits your ability to get usage. Um, St. Brown has the density to play outside. I just don't know how his skill set and athletic athleticism will prove. Like, I don't know if he had played outside at USC, if he would have been a 16 yards per catch kind of guy, he might've been. And that's what the combine is useful for. In my opinion, it helps kind of narrow some of those questions down to, to things you can reasonably conclude. But right now I, I really don't know. Yeah, I, I watched uh, some film of him over the last couple of days, and occasionally they they would put him outside. Um, yeah, and you I'm know, optimistic. He, I mean, I I think he's really convinced. I, cause he was like three years younger than or two years younger than Pittman, and just just took over that offense. Like yes, uh, right right away. Like as a true freshman, extremely impressive. Yeah, so he had the the high prospect pedigree coming in was really productive all three years um you know again watching some of his tape over the last couple of days like there there were some times especially like in close like in goal line situations where it maybe this isn't the best jumping off point to, to draw any really real conclusions from but like he completely you know dusted corners going to to fade routes and stuff and that that's not that's a a, a play that is kind of going by the wayside in the nfl but it's good if you have see. someone that that yeah if you have someone that that has a talent advantage like usc did against washington state's corners then like of course you can go up and do it and it, it looked like he he was capable of that but i don't know how how much it will so, translate against real nfl talent yeah they don't run fades from the slot up that close you know so if he's running that route it means that he's viable as an outside route runner for that look. And in that, in the case of the fade, it's basically like the question of, can you get a clean release outside? And that's more, more than like size limitations or anything. That's the biggest thing about playing outside is you have to get away from the jam. And if you can't get away, then you can't get into your routes and it doesn't really matter how fast you are or whatever. So uh, the, the other way around is if you can get clean releases and that this comes down to basically like a, a small technical detail in the in the aspects of playing receiver it, it's just a it's a wide receiver task that you know it it's one of those things like some guys get good at it sometimes guys are naturally good at it uh sometimes they improve sometimes they don't but if you can get that quick release it's almost like a point guard kind of skill set thing like can you can you just lose someone as the ball carrier even though they're zeroed in on you right up in front of you can you just lose them in that face off for just a second because if you can then you can get into your clean route and in the nfl with the particularly with the rules that they have nowadays about illegal contact and stuff that's quite a bit of currency in itself and if as long as you can do that you can probably play outside and especially at least you can play outside when the field gets smaller uh because if the field is smaller if you're slow it doesn't matter as much because where are you going to run sure so anyway, yeah, I think I'm, I'm I mean to sound optimistic about St. Brown, even though I'm, you know, not fully certain about much about him. No, that, that's totally fair. Um, I think you have the right read on, on him. Um, yeah, I think you laid out all the cases for, for him one way or the other. I think Christian Kirk is definitely like a, a logical, at least at this stage, a, a logical comp to, to stick Christian to St. Brown. I think Brown. he's good, to be clear. 
Yes. Um, okay, let's move on to Rashad Bateman, Minnesota star receiver. Uh, played with Tyler Johnson there for a couple of years, then was the main guy um, this past year. Didn't really have crazy production until his sophomore year, his freshman year. They, they had a lot of problems on offense just in general. Um, he's 6'2", 210, so you got to love that frame. He looks to me like he's like he's quick and fast enough for that yeah. size. Has some pretty nice moves off the line uh, in, in, uh, in terms of his ability to, to generate that separation that we were just talking about. Again, especially for a guy his size. I kind of view him maybe as like a supercharged gabriel davis or something that's not bad i have trouble figuring out bateman for for a variety of reasons and the tyler johnson case is actually a big part of it because rashad bateman has been just open and shut excellent as a producer at minnesota like his, his production is not just good it's great there's no doubt about that the problem is that was also true about tyler johnson there was there was nothing ambiguous about the fact that his production was some of the best from a wide receiver that we've seen in years. And he fell to the fifth round and barely stayed in the fifth round of the most recent draft. And Bateman was not better than Tyler Johnson. Not that he needed to be. Like these things don't come down to, to that those specific of, of comparisons. But the mere fact that Bateman has been very productive just can't really mean as much to me as it would in other cases. Uh, with that said... He is probably a safely better athlete than Tyler Johnson. Like as much as as much as I feel like Tyler Johnson's production was compelling, uh, I, and as much as I I, per, I think he fell too far in that draft, it's it's uh, also safe to say that Tyler Johnson's probably a below average athlete. Yeah. As, as far as like starting consideration, NFL receivers typically go. Bateman should be an above average athlete. He might be way above average. I don't really know how to. It's always hard to tell. You know, with Big Ten guys, especially when they play for a team like Minnesota, it's like, yeah, he looks fast, but these guys are all two stars. Like, of course, he's going to look fast running against like Nebraska sure. as, as the wide receiver one uh, for Minnesota. But you know, he made a lot of big plays downfield in 2019, especially. Uh, it's always good to see stuff like 11 touchdowns on 60 catches and 20 yards per catch. That basically means like he just had a lot of backbreaking plays against the defense, which is really good to see for a player who is in his 19 and a half year season or sorry, uh, I guess he was turning 20 about that time. Uh, so th- the other thing is too, is like, I see some of the people in the Devi scene on, on the, on the Twitter talking about how like, you know, his breakout age is a record setting dominator rating and stuff. And it's, it's like, that stuff's kind of interesting and it, it's definitely, you know, pertinent and worth keeping track of. But Rashad Bateman as a freshman, you know, he broke out earlier than any other freshman. It's like, he was a 19 year old, or sorry, uh, yeah, he turned 19 in November of his his freshman year, so he's about as old as a lot of, a lot of sophomores are. And um, in that year, he he had a lot of volume. Yes, he had uh, 51 catches for 704 yards, six touchdowns on 100 targets, and that's impressive generally. But the reason I'm not making a, a star level assumption about it that is that he was actually below baseline. Like that's the volume right. was good, but the baseline he was below it, which which is fine because it's like you generally don't ask. 18, 19 year old players to carry so much weight. It's not a bad thing that he basically couldn't as well as Tyler Johnson, but it is one of those things like Rondale Moore didn't have that happen. You know, like there's, there's other cases of guys who, uh, you know, they, they get on the field and they are more efficient when they're early on the field, even if they have good volume, but it is good. It's a good thing. I mean to say, it's just, it's just not, um, 
it's not as good as like Terrace Marshall or Jamar Chase's career starts to me, even though it's like you look at it, it's like, but he was a true freshman. It's like he was he turned 19 as a freshman. I don't know what what do you want me to do? Um, yeah. But anyway, he looks good. I, I just it's one of those things like I need him to test well at the combine because in the meantime, I've got similar level quality of production, probably better, actually, with guys like Chris Olav, Terrace Marshall, um, the Alabama guys, of course. So the only way Bateman can make his production of a similar level of quality as theirs to me is if he can test as a similar level athlete as them, which he very well, very well might. And uh, I mean to leave that you know open by listing him in the second tier here. He, he's, he could get to that first tier – or sorry, sorry, third tier could get into my second tier. I don't think anyone's catching Chase in the first tier for me. Nope. Um, but yeah, there's, there's some other guys who I would say don't have the ability to move up and Bateman can move up. Okay. What, what do you think would be like that, that threshold for you as far as the, the testing is, is concerned? Like, uh, as far as like his 40, uh, goes as long as, so if he's, if he's, uh, he's listed at six two two ten. So generally speaking for a guy listed at six two two ten, we assume that he's going to be like six one two oh eight to two fifteen, something like that. Either way, he's got a pretty well-developed frame. Uh, especially for you know his age level he's got a well-developed frame he could be one of the denser receivers for his frame and given that or, or as long as that's the case he doesn't need to be as fast as some other guys like there's more pressure on Devonte smith to have a good combine than rashad bateman because bateman's gonna have a, a much more uh like traffic viable frame like his, his frame is viable for a physicality element in the nfl whereas smith isn't realistically so he needs to have the athleticism to, to, to maintain his, his current level of effectiveness. Bateman, if he's big enough, doesn't have as much pressure on that. So depending on how he weighs in, uh, we'll see. But if he ran like a, you know, if he was 6'1", 210, and he ran a 4'4", or something, that's, that's probably where it starts to get, you know, borderline impressive for me to the point that I reconsider things. But if, if he runs like a, if he's 6'1", 210, and runs like a 4'5", 4, 4 or something, I'm not going to freak out about it, but it's like it'll kind of validate my not listing him as high as, as some of those other guys okay all right that's a good range to to apply when it comes to minnesota's rashad bateman uh we talked about R- rondale moore a bit last week i, I believe um, yeah. so we we can move on over to uh the number nine ranked receiver diami brown out of north carolina six foot 185 uh, really impressive production his last uh, couple of seasons at at North Carolina UNC had a really dynamic passing attack the last two years and whereas Daz Newsom completely fell off the face of the earth this year much to my chagrin and DFS for college uh, Deami Brown was a consistent producer all the way through this year he's got that just really impressive natural downfield ability a couple of back-to-back um, thousand yard seasons has 20 touchdowns over his last two seasons at UNC uh, so it, it all looks like it's there for him he's really smooth um, looks fast I, there's a lot to like about him he's six foot 185 so that's that's again not the best frame in the world but it, I mean it's not necessarily concerning either right and in Diami Brown's case it's not specifically concerning because we probably have reason to believe that he will test athletically in such a way that uh he meets you know like he's got he's got more of a Devonte smith kind of frame and so he does have more pressure to perform well at the combine than someone like bateman but we also have reason to believe he's gonna do it and mm-hmm. uh i th- there is there's like workout work uh reported workout numbers around diami brown that that i'm not actually privy to i don't have like the espn insider recruiting uh 
subscription or whatever. So I don't know what those high school combine numbers are. But for Diami Brown, it's one of those things like even for, you know, big schools like North Carolina and, you know, ACC standout receivers of your whatever. It's like he kind of stands out among those guys for his explosiveness in his numbers. It's it's at once kind of concerning for me that he's uh, overall kind of skinny. And the other weird thing about Diami Brown is he actually looks lankier than he is. Like he, he's got the kind of like limb proportion to uh, to like torso mass of someone who looks like he's six three, but he's only f- like five eleven or six foot or something. Mm-hmm. So that that's a little concerning because if if I'm I, I'm not judging him on this to be clear. Like I when I see something like that, I usually just I chalk it up to just kind of like meaninglessness or like optical illusion or something like that. Um, I, I, don't, I don't actually care. Um, pending the athletic testing because I think he'll prove to be fast. And if it's like, if the guy's fast and if the guy's quick, then uh, it doesn't matter what he looks like aesthetically. It's just, those things are just true now, you know? And in the meantime, this kind of stuff, 20 touchdown catches on 106 catches. That's, that's the kind of stuff that makes you think, you know, this guy, this guy doesn't just make big plays. He's the kind of guy who makes big plays, even though the defense is specifically trying to stop him and they they just can't really do it because he's he's playing way above the North Carolina baseline for for yardage per target. I don't know if he I think he was at or below uh, the catch percentage baseline in 2019, but then in 2020, which he still is only um, he only just turned 21, I think late in the season and uh, November, yeah uh, November 1st. So yeah, he he was he was listed as uh, you know basically he's he's as uh, young as like some you know, sophomores or something like that. Uh, like a, if, if Rashad Bateman were in the same class, he'd basically be like a year older um, than Diami Brown. So he, he's pretty young. And so for him to be producing like that, when he's basically unrefined, that's, that's the kind of stuff that you, you have to start circling him as, as an upside guy, because he might not get further refined, but if he does, you know, he'll get better and he's already more or less good enough. So his worst case scenario, I think, in the NFL is like he'll be an outside receiver who's a downfield specialist, sideline specialist kind of guy. I mentioned Will Fuller as a potential comparison. Uh, that's a pretty high bar. I, I am a Will Fuller fan. I don't take that comparison lightly. But frame-wise, production-wise, there's a lot objectively similar going into their combines. Mm-hmm. It's just that you know, if you want to be Will Fuller, you have to run that 4-3-1 or whatever it was. And Brown could do it. I, I, it's hard to tell. He's, he's, I feel like he's got more of a like a stride to him than Fuller or a receiver like that. He does, he's not really like a choppy foot guy, even though he's he's kind of you know smallish. Um, but it's fine because if it's like those strides are taking him at a 4-3 speed, then you know, look at the production. It it all starts to make sense at that point. For sure. I mean, do you think realistically, like what, where would it start to hurt him combine wise? And where would he maybe start to like really move up? Would, would he have to be like a mid four, five mid four fours guy for it to be like, okay, that that's, you know, that what we thought was going to be a, a translatable um, downfield ability might not be there quite the same. And if he runs sub four, four, it's like, okay, we, we need to really start considering him like in the top 40 picks. Yeah, I guess for whatever it's worth in the meantime, I'm considering him in the top 40 just as like a, you know, before I know anything kind of thing. But the worst case scenario for Deami Brown in terms of his probably uh, draft stock or not draft stock, I shouldn't say that. uh, But in terms of his NFL outcome, the worst case scenario is probably something like Paul Richardson. And Paul Richardson was like a 38th overall pick, which would be, of course, very good for Dami Brown if he went that high. But uh, Paul Richardson was six foot 175, and that 
that's not exactly the same. Like, uh, Diami Brown will probably be like a five eleven of some sort. The question is whether they round it down or round it up because it's five eleven and a half or higher. Uh, Paul Richardson was six foot, so he was probably listed at six one. The one seventy five, I can't remember what he was listed at for for the weight, but Diami Brown's listed at one eighty, so it's not that far away. It it isn't. As much as we generally assume prospects will add weight going into the combines just because it's kind of like they're actually weight training and they're they're still growing basically. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, not, they're not getting taller but physically they're still growing. So we assume that Diami Brown will be 5'11", 188 or something in which case he's basically the same as Santonio Holmes. But if he goes in and surprisingly it's like you're 5'11 and 7 eighths so we're going to list you at 6 foot and you came in lighter than expected. That's when I started to get worried because – uh, not that I'm gonna like throw him in the you know the trash bin for it, but if if Diami Brown shows up at six foot one seventy five, then it's like okay, we already know that Paul Richardson, a guy who was pretty productive, very productive, I guess you could say at, at Colorado, we know that him being six foot one seventy five and running a four four flat basically wasn't good enough. So if you show up at six foot one seventy five, you could still run a four four flat and still have a much better career than Paul Richardson. But when we're trying to, you know, narrow the range of possibilities, we start going in the the negative direction there. It's like sure. the, the good case scenario can still happen. It's just not as likely. And uh, so it's like if he shows up at six foot one seventy five, then I need him to run something like a four three eight or better, or I'm going to feel a little anxious about it. Because if you want to be a skinny speed receiver, you better be fast enough to do it because you're not going to be able to lean on your physicality. No, absolutely not. So that always is the concern with with the with the uh, lighter framed type of guys. So so his way in will definitely um, be one of the bigger ones to to watch for uh, once the combine gets rolling. Let's go, Amari Rogers, your tenth ranked receiver. Um, he's an interesting guy, and I would also. I don't know if uh, I'm not trying to do a gotcha, but I noticed that this guy wasn't on your rankings, but teammate no. Cornell Powell as well. Um, right. But- I, I actually I left him out and I, I kind of am rethinking that now. But uh, yeah, I, he was not on my radar coming into this year to, to be completely clear. But but I did. And I was very, very skeptical of him. But I did come away impressed with Cornell Powell this season but it you know the the arguments against him are are strong you know a, a complete late bloomer i should i because I, I didn't mean to rule him out it's uh it's it's um like it could be another i don't know jerron brown kind of guy it's like he's, he's he could just hang around a little bit but he could be good uh, you know it, there's a difference between playing late and playing well and uh, sorry, only playing late and only playing well and playing early and playing poorly and then playing better later. Like that wasn't really what happened with him is like he he only played a little bit, but he did really well. I, I can't take away the credit for it, you know, unless I, I don't know what his age is. If he's like 24 or something, then I, I probably don't care. But in any case, Amari Rogers, he's he's a guy who maybe I'm maybe I'm just missing something because as far as I know, I'm a lot higher on him than anyone. Yeah, that's the highest I've seen him, I think. Yeah. So. I'm deferring to the the process of you know age adjusted production and and generic frame considerations. I haven't looked so much at his tape to 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 look for like technique errors or anything like that. Perhaps there's some red flag that I should have seen that that I just haven't. But this guy is really well built for his frame. He might be five nine. That's that's the risk with him. Is like basically he ends up being a slot guy in the NFL, and if he falls into like the fourth round and he's a slot guy, then you're at risk of being like a healthy scratch if you don't play special teams and if you don't do swing backup snaps at outside receiver. But with his frame being so dense, 
I feel like he can he's, he, he he might end up a slot guy, but I think it's less risky than if he were like 5'10", 180 as opposed to 5'10", 210. And he's getting this really dense frame while he do, he only turned 21 in late September. So it's not like he's just, you know, been in a BCS weight room for so long that he's all cushioned up. It's, it's just that he seems to have a pretty naturally dense frame and, uh, you know, he's built it well enough over college career. And the production has been awesome. He was a five-star recruit too, so we don't exactly we, – we have no reason to think that Amari Rodgers will test poorly or anything like that. And the tape that I've watched of him, he, he looks pretty damn fast. So if he's fast and he's you know, the chunkiest of the s- smallish type receivers in this draft and his production as a former five-star recruit was staying above the baseline of the Clemson passing offense in general – that's that's enough for me. I, I stop asking questions at that point because he's playing next to T. Higgins and Justin Ross and Hunter Renfro, and he's 19 years old. He's like turning 19 in the season, and he's he, he's got more volume than Hunter Renfro in that offense, and he's got efficiency that's above the baseline. You, you, so like the more volume you get, the less you need to be above the baseline because it, you are the baseline. It becomes mm-hmm. like a tautological thing at a certain point. But uh, he played – at a higher level of efficiency in that smaller volume role. And then this year he took on the volume and he still stayed highly productive. So if his efficiency took a big hit in, in uh, the higher volume role that he took this year, that's when I stop things and kind of look at it and like, okay, he's probably just a situational guy. It's like, he's a guy who makes big plays when the defense doesn't have to worry about him. But then when they start looking at him more like this year, he falls off a bit. Didn't happen. He, he stayed as visible as ever or he got much more visible and he just stayed as productive as ever so with especially with that five-star detail here we probably have reason to think he'll test well at the combine so if if, if amari if amari rogers runs like uh at five nine and a half two oh eight if he runs like a four four seven or something i know it's not the kind of thing that'll get a lot of attention because we look for the low four threes or the mid four threes and stuff like that uh, or we look for obviously big receivers who run the low four fours but that would be one of those things where it's like, you know, this this guy's a bowling ball and, and he's a bowling ball that goes as fast as a rocket. You know, it's like that's those are novel traits to have. And when you look at the production that he had at Clemson competing against good players for that usage and basically outplaying them, it's like clearly he's got skill to go with it. So uh, I, maybe maybe I should have him lower than a guy like Tylon Wallace, who I have at 11 in the same tier, to be clear. Uh, but yeah, Tylen Wallace is the guy who's more likely to, I guess, play outside between the two. And he's he's got the same six foot 185 listed as Diami Brown, uh, but he's a little older than him. And he has a bit of Tylen Wallace has a bit of a knee thing at Oklahoma State. But Tylen Wallace is, is an interesting guy, too. I think uh, Amari Rogers and Tylen Wallace, I think, are in play for the first round, even though I have them ranked in the double digits. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll start with, with Amari Rogers. He had an interesting career. I mean, like he tore his ACL in yeah. spring practice going into the 2019 season and was playing in week two. Yeah. Like that, that's that's just, inc- it's incredible. But, um, you know, he, look, to your point, um, he was a guy that, that was always productive when given the chances. Um, I, I thought he was shaking off the rust a little bit for a lot of that 2019 season, and you can completely uh, forgive him for that given how quickly the, the turnaround from the injury was. And then, like you said, when the usage increased, the efficiency actually you know went up. He, you know, Getting 102 targets and turning that into over 1,000 yards and seven touchdowns and, and an extremely high catch rate, yeah. that's good stuff. And I think that there there's a growing – you know. 
we see it with with AJ Brown and that Amari Rogers isn't AJ Brown or anything, but that there's a I think there's a desire in the NFL to get those guys that can be running backs once they have the ball in their hands. And Rogers at five ten or five ten two hundred ten pounds. He like after the catch, he looks like a running back. Like he, yeah. he, he runs with a lot of force, and he's not going to be a fun guy to tackle. So he's got the the receiver polish and, and pedigree, and he's got that that frame too. And I, I also believe he is T. Martin's young or oldest son. So that's also really? pretty cool. Yes. Yeah, I had no idea about that. Um, yeah, so that's you know T. Martin was. He wasn't a good NFL quarterback or anything, but he was one of the when better. When I was like six or seven, when he athletes. was in college, I was like, "This guy is the coolest guy I've ever seen." Oh yeah, no, he was no, he was good. He was and he was a really good athlete. It's it's a uh, okay. How about this? If um, if Terrence Metcalf and and can turn into like DK Metcalf, then T Martin is you know that that's that's better athleticism. Uh, indicator than uh, my dad was a, a good guard at Auburn <laughs> you know like this this is T Martin you, that was especially back when it's like to be a quarterback in that in that sort of environment it's like you have to be the best athlete on your team basically yeah. until you get to the to the blue chip schools so T Martin is is probably a more athletic guy than than uh Terrence Met uh, was it Terrence Metcalf I can't remember the, whoever the that Bears guard was that DK's dad was it's like he was, okay. he was not a if, if he could turn that much uh, if you can turn that sort of genetic uh, yield, then T. Martin is a good starting point too. There we go. So yes, I, I, it, it was one of those things where like I was interested to see where you go next after Deami Brown and seeing Rogers there. Like I was very interested to see wh- where you landed on him, and I, I think that you being as optimistic on, on him, I, 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 I tend to defer to you on some of these things so i mean i, I feel like he outplayed renfro yeah. when renfro was like four years older than him <laughs> that's you know and, and again he's matching the standards set by t higgins who we know is a star justin ross who you know hopefully it works out for him i don't know what his deal is but if he hadn't had that spinal issue he would have largely been a lot of people probably would have ranked him higher than t higgins he might be better than t higgins i'm already held up with them yeah uh, absolutely did so he he becomes a guy that that really needs to be on, on dynasty radars um could end up going a lot higher than, than maybe some people have him right now um do you have do you have anything to add on to tylen wallace because he had just an awesome career as far as his production but he did have the knee stuff towards yeah. uh, the end of his junior year and then his senior year as well he looked like he, w- he was banged up at times i do believe he played in, in that bowl game at least so should be able to test but uh, I think that he he's a guy with, that will have the standout production part of his profile, but I, I do have some injury concern and some yeah. uh, just overall top end athleticism concern with Wallace. Yeah, six foot one eighty five is kind of skinny, especially if you're supposed to be the kind of player that Tylon Wallace was at Oklahoma State, where he, he was a workhorse receiver. Like he did uh, the stuff underneath, the stuff intermediate, going deep, high volume. He did it all of it. And he did it on a kind of skinnyish frame that I I don't think it's I don't think he can have the same presence in an NFL offense with a frame like that and and I don't think we have any evidence that he's going to be like a four three guy or anything like that though uh, it's totally possible um, basically the deal with Tylon Wallace is he has to be good at playing receiver he has to be good at knowing what to do as a receiver because he produced in big volume high efficiency as a young player at Oklahoma state and there was uh, 
it's like I think uh, Tyron Johnson was actually there, that Chargers receiver, mm-hmm. and uh, Tylon was younger than him and, and totally outplayed, outproduced him. And I think part of that might have been Tyron was a little bit miscast. Like I think Oklahoma State looked at him and was like, "You just you're a fly route guy, go run fly routes, uh, cl- clear out room for Tylon over here." And maybe that's what happened. Um, but even if so, it's like they don't reach that decision to say like, "Hey, you got to." be a decoy for Tylon here unless Tylon is pretty good and his production absolutely backed it up he has had some kind of knee thing at multiple points I feel like what, what was it last year and this year late after like the eighth game he had a knee thing I, I, think, he, I think he had a season-ending knee injury uh in like November of last year okay um, but was ready to roll for for the start of this season but did then great also yeah hurt yeah, got hurt again. Did great before he got hurt. So I'm convinced that he's good. The question is kind of just like, what is his upside? Like, how athletic is he going to be? How skinny is he actually going to be at the weigh-ins? So that and the knee are, are basically why I have him this low. If I was just ranking them on how good they were as college receivers, uh, he would be higher than this. So he's a guy. I'm, I'm. I'm. He's one of those guys that makes you anxious ranking him so low, uh, even though it feels like there's there's good reasons to do it. But uh, yeah, he was he was younger than. Tyron Johnson, younger than Dylan Stoner, and uh, he was clearly the workhorse even with both of them there. And and I thought Tyron did pretty impressively, consistently, every time I saw him this year for the Chargers. True. Yeah, he absolutely did. So, I mean, there, there's no doubt that the Wallace, again, what was awesome in college, it's just like it – yeah, we, we – we run into guys all the time that have amazing college careers, but but don't actually have. Yeah, like awesome. maybe he's another Peter Warwick type for all I know, but mm. it's like you still got to take those Peter Warwick types in the second or third round. It's some of the Peter in some universe, uh, some other simulation, Peter Warwick was the best. P- Peter Warwick was like the Antonio Brown of his timeline. You know, um, that it was production like this. You 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 can't make a like good. Uh, sustainable investment plan by by fading players like that no exactly yeah so th- there is some upside there we'll we'll have to see um man peter peter work and t martin references on, on this <laughs> one this is yeah that like my introduction to football back then i'm bringing like back guys. my uh 2000 bringing out all my 2001 press pass cards Yes, and I, I remember like being terrified that the Bengals had, had gotten Peter Warwick and just thought he was going to take the league over. And um, Ron Dugans. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and, and Akili Smith Smith calling the shots back there, going into year three or whatever. <laughs> it, it, it has to work. I think it went well. I can't remember, but I th- I th- that was probably a good team. Right. Um, okay, so we're through the, the top 11 let's uh we don't have to run through all of the these next group of guys but but who are some some notable um guys from your next uh tier of receivers that that you'd like to get into well anthony schwartz is one of these guys who you're gonna see a lot of criticism about him being like oh he's soft he's a track guy and uh he is a track track guy yes he's he's a very much a track guy yeah he's the fastest guy in the country his he is such a track guy he might break john ross's 40 time record and i know that i know that people it's almost like there's this default suspicion that a player will get now if he runs too fast and i kind of get it it's like you don't you don't want to be the al davis who falls for the stanford route or whatever the darius hayward bay Mm -hmm. but Schwartz is being talked about as like a third or a fourth round pick. And 
if he's going in that range, then he's actually zero risk. There's no there's no meaningful risk in taking a player with his profile that late in a draft. Now, if, if someone takes him at the 30th overall, that's different. Then we're talking like Henry Ruggs type trap, I think. But the guy doesn't seem to lack for any you know, work ethic or like seriousness as a football player. He seemed to improve. He, I remember looking at Schwartz on tape a couple of years ago before I knew who he was. And I remember thinking like, Oh, he, he looks like he's still a high schooler or something. Like he just, he doesn't look like he's picking up on the speed of this game. Like he's a little bit out of place. And I think that that started to wear away. Like he, he played more and he, he seems pretty serious about committing to football and his production this last year was totally good actually. And yeah. when I worry about a, a, a guy being like a workout warrior and not good, then I expected to show up somehow in his production, but it didn't. I thought Schwartz basically outplayed Seth Williams this year. And I, I'm a, I don't know of anyone who has Anthony Schwartz ranked ahead of Seth Williams, but I do because it's, it's like, if he's a, if he's a five eleven one eighty 180 guy who runs a four two eight, then he's going to play in the NFL. And we don't need to so much ask ourselves the question of like how good he'll be because at that point in the process, he's getting you snaps, you know, and uh, that, that kind of speed is going to play. Even if it's just a decoy, it's going to play. But I think he might have some room to actually be a good player because his skill set so far is basically underneath stuff. Yeah. Uh, like he's doing a lot of running with the football, which is what I want to see because that's, you know, as much as I want to see what he can do as a deep threat too. It's like if, if you're a skinny guy who can run with the football a little bit, like that's, it's easier for, for the NFL to, get you on the field a little bit because you, you know, they're not going to put you out there for your blocking. So uh, I want you to be able to get those short targets and, and give them something easy so they can find, so they don't have to argue against themselves for a reason to get you on the field. And if he's producing like he did this year, there's no reason for them to take him off the field either. Like and he's, he's still young too. Like he only, uh, he won't be 21 until September 5th. So if a guy looks raw and he's not even, you know, he's playing in his age 20 season as a third year player. It's like, that's not worth getting worked up about because it, it's one thing if you're like 22 and a half and you look raw, that's a bad sign. Admittedly, that's not what's happening here. He's still basically young for his level of experience. And when you're talking four two five or something, it's like, just stop, stop over analyzing it. And there's probably like a, a little bit of like the Miko comparison or parallel. Bit, where like yeah. he, he hasn't been like fully focused on playing receiver all that long. That's true. I mean, I, I will say this. Miko, one of the reasons I was a truther of his, uh, aside from like your your encouragement, uh, one of the reasons I was a truther of Miko's so early is because he was one of those guys when you turn on the tape, the motor is the first thing that you see. Even before the speed, you see like, oh, this guy plays pissed off. Mm. And that's the kind of thing that just kind of hints toward their general personality. Is like this guy isn't going to be outworked. He's not going to be uh, out hustled or something. I didn't see so much like, I don't think Anthony Schwartz has that like killer instinct mentality. Um, but a, you know, if you're, if you're really just a track guy, that's probably not the most natural thing in the world. You might develop it as you, you know, stay around the game, get more confident in it. Maybe that starts to let out your, your kind of more, more primal side. I don't know. Um, but also it's like, he, do, he doesn't need to be me to be me You know, mm-hmm. um, he can, he can just be a guy who is fast and, uh, is, is kind of, uh, you know, very even tempered and, and not animated and he could still be good as long as he keeps doing if he keeps building on the things that he's been building, uh, he's he's going to come out some version of good and useful. It's just kind of 
you know, it's, it's not obvious what his frame will look like, what his demeanor, what his, what his skill set will look like. It's still very much in the process of developing, but I think he's generally underrated right now. Like I, I think he's, if he can outproduce Seth Williams last year and he's not going to turn 21 until September and he runs a four, two, five, I just don't need to know more unless, unless the question becomes like, do you take him in the top 15? Then it's like, okay, now I need to know more, but right now I don't. No, that, that's a that's a great way of framing it. Where like it, you know we we don't have that immediate like John Ross top ten pick pressure uh, right. that's going to be placed on him. It, he'll he'll get a little bit more more cushion as, to develop, and, and there there are definitely tools there to develop. Um, let's see. Let, real quickly, John, sure. uh, the basic deal with Tamori and Terry thirteen and Nico Collins fourteen is these are the guys who if there's going to be a Kenny Galladay in the draft, it'll be them. Uh, we don't know what they're going to measure, what they're going to time at yet. Uh, but they both were really good production-wise in college, I think. A little bit different ways. Like, Tamori and Terry was a, a volume guy for Florida State. His catch rate was always below the baseline uh, because they were just chucking it downfield to him, basically. Uh, but his yardage per, per target was way above the baseline. And, and clearly, I, th- I think Tamori and Terry has some some skill to go with a frame that might be the size speed frame among this receiver class. Cause he's, he's going to be probably like six, three two ten, And we might have re we probably have reason for him to, to run uh, sorry reason to believe he'll run something in like the mid four threes or the high four threes. And if he does that, that's one of those things like, okay, if you, if you caught these passes and you're this fast, this big, I don't really need to think too much more about it. Yeah. Nico, I wonder if, if we'll see him get the same apology apologists, um, that like Cam Akers did. I mean, I know they play different positions, but like the Florida State's offense, it wasn't just the offensive line that was broken. Right. The whole thing has been broken the entire time that that Terry was there. And yes, he he still. It reminded me of Slayton at Auburn a little bit. Okay, interesting. Um, or like as far as being a a six three two hundred guy who maybe runs a four four or better. Uh, Denzel Mims comes to mind. Like Mims had low catch rates two at Baylor because he would do a lot of those just sideline chucking targets so but yeah that's a that's a that's a good point to raise it's it's I think I think Slayton and Mims are the kind of genre but uh Mims like frame uh but like Slayton like kind of uh skill set I guess I like it and then what what's the deal with with Nico Collins uh just that he's he's like really efficient at Michigan and he was it was hard to figure out those Michigan receivers largely because their quarterback play was so bad. But uh, Donovan Peoples-Jones, in hindsight, I, I was too low on him as a prospect. I think that there were some dysfunction dysfunctions in the Michigan offense that kind of explained some of his concerning production details. But whatever Donovan Peoples-Jones turns out to be, it's it's important to note that Collins was basically the better player between the two. Like they both had low shares of the offense, and that's the concern with Collins. Basically, it's like we know he's good at doing certain things. He's good at being a big outside receiver who makes big plays on like post routes, fly routes around the sideline generally, but we don't know if he can do more than that. And he didn't do more than that at Michigan. So his share numbers, he 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 would be very efficient. You know, it's like he'd catch seventy percent of his targets for ten yards a target way out playing the baseline of the Michigan passing game in the process, but he's only getting like 17% of the targets. And with that kind of thing, you worry that they're just a situational player because if Mm -hmm. if they were, if this offense that wants to do better than it did uh, could get him the ball more for more of the same returns, you would have thought that they would have done it. Right. And sometimes it turns out to be right. Sometimes it turns out to be the explanation is something dumb. Like, well, actually, no, they had a very particular stupid scheme they were trying to run. And it was, 
a very bad idea and it wasn't Collins's fault. And there's more reason than there was a year ago to believe that because Donovan Peoples-Jones did very well for the Browns this year. So if Donovan Peoples-Jones turns out to be good and if Nico Collins was better than him at Michigan, then we have reason to believe Collins can stick in the NFL. Uh, in the meantime, there's there's a lot of unknowns. Like we don't know how fast he is. We don't know specifically how big he is. We don't know how old he is. So those things could hold some sway. Um, otherwise, last thing I'll say is uh, we got 15 here. Kadarius Tony is someone that people have a lot of people have ranked in like their top five and six and stuff. I don't share that, um, but I will admit if there's a Brandon Ayuk in this draft, it's him because he's he's definitely going to be really fast. Yes, yeah, he's he's slick, um, and I, I think that you can somewhat wash away some of the lack of production his first couple of years there, um, kind of based on you know there there's Felipe Franks. Uh, I I felt like Tony always. I mean, I, I watch a ton of Florida as as a Georgia guy, like I always felt very uncomfortable when if like tony was started getting the ball because you could tell that he was just really versatile and explosive and you know you, you wouldn't say that he looked like percy harvin but like if there was a percy harvin on, on re- recent florida teams t- tony kind of fits that mold a little bit and i uh, it really started to pay off of, of course um this past season he was awesome th- this year but you know it, it definitely didn't hurt that kyle pitts was stressing defenses really hard as well yeah so uh tony though he looks like he's gonna run you know not to jinx him or anything but it looks like he's gonna run four three something or other probably probably like 195 something or other and uh the concerns with him will be like well what kind of route runner is he we really don't know he like he, he made some big plays at this year but a lot of those big plays were just kind of screen passes jet sweep type stuff so when i say brandon Ayuk, i also mean the part where he might need his space created for him in the nfl and he might not look quite as dynamic if he doesn't have the space if he needs to create it in the form of like route running separation i don't particularly see the evidence right now like it could happen but i feel like it it would be like taking a leap of faith to to think it would okay jury a little bit out as far as him uh, in the complete skill set but definitely a toolsy guy nonetheless um that's gonna wrap things up for our divisional round preview and part two of our receiver breakdown for the 2021 rookie wide receivers we'll be back next week getting into more draft stuff and of course championship weekend thanks for listening to the rotowire nfl podcast Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. 
No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.